apart, everybody. Don't drop that fast forward button. The sponsorship roll call is about to begin. Energy Consulting Limited provides complete project management and general contracting services to a variety of private sector clients on both commercial and residential construction projects. They act as the owner's representatives through the planning, design, budgeting, scheduling, construction, and occupancy processes. Clients appreciate their open, honest, and flexible approach to achieving their project goals. Although they are located in Surrey, BC, Energy works on projects all over the province, including the growing cities of the north and the beautiful coastal towns of Vancouver Island. They're always excited to explore new places and develop relationships with professionals wherever their clients' interests may be. Abacus North is a firm that specializes in mortgage banking solutions for complex projects. In addition to providing financing solutions in a traditional mortgage broker capacity, Abacus North provides direct loans that range from $2 million to $25 million. On a syndicated basis, they provide mortgage banking solutions up to $300 million. In most cases, their in-house capital solutions can bridge financing gaps that traditional lenders are unable to service. They specialize in providing land acquisition loans, construction financing for large-scale developments, income-producing properties, and single-purpose facilities. With a portfolio that includes high-rise, mid-rise, and low-rise condominiums, townhouse developments, shopping centers, agricultural properties, industrial developments, and medical marijuana facilities, Abacus North is at the forefront of creative mortgage banking solutions with a focus on fostering long-term relationships. They are a multifaceted organization that services domestic and international clients with their mortgage banking needs. Complex financing solutions require analytical thinking well beyond a typical mortgage broker relationship. As a result, they focus on providing engineered solutions for their client. Their key differentiation strategy is that they assist clients in actively managing the capital stack in order to minimize borrowing costs while maximizing flexibility. Abacus North focuses on national and global opportunities. We are I. Welcome everybody to another edition of We Are Right. We have Bridget here from upstate New York who wrote the book Handbook of Chinese Medicine and Ayurveda, an Integrated Practice of Ancient Healing Traditions. Now, obviously anybody who knows me, listens to me, or just is around me knows that this is like a huge part of my life and I'm only becoming more so and that's why I see just like the absolute value of having somebody like Bridget on this podcast to be able to not only to further educate me to be able to help all you guys more, but um, so that you guys just have like a a resource to be able to continually come back to to be able to leverage information. So uh, welcome to the show, Bridget. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, so like fill me in. I know we were talking a little bit before, but like I want to know how you got started in all this because like your book is not just a simple like how to guide or like the like the Coles notes or like the the general overview. I feel like it gets quite detailed. So there's a lot going on to you, a lot going on upstairs, and like what? Why is it so passionate for you? Like why did you get into this, and what brought you to this way of life? Um, I would have to say that I've always been interested in sort of the unknown. I've always been drawn to ancient um, history and ancient philosophy and healing traditions. Um, In 1992, I took a trip to Greece 
with my college and we went to old Epidaurus, which is the original home of uh, a huge healing complex called the Asclepian Healing Temple Complex. And what people would do is go into these complexes whenever they were really sick and were not getting better. And they would see a comedy, see a tragedy, bathe in the naturally occurring springs. And then when the temple priest would deem them ready, they would sleep overnight in the temple. And the temple would have assistance and there are these um, stone Stella of showing the, the temple assistants and priestesses with their hands over people as they slept. And it was a dream healing facility. And having always been a, a very vivid dreamer, I really related to that. I was fascinated with it. You know, I always had like dream dictionaries looking stuff up and dream journals and recording my dreams. So when I found out about this was an actually like established thing, I was really blown away by it. So um, people would wake up in the morning after spending the night in the temple and they would either have what they needed to do to heal themselves, what the blockage was that would not allow them to heal themselves in this lifetime, or they would be healed. And so there are all these records that they have in the museums and whatnot of people who've had like miraculous sort of healing downloaded to them while they slept and had people what looks like doing Reiki or some other kind of energy healing modality on them. They'd have massages and things like that. So um, so that was one exposure. And then when I got back from Greece, I worked in a shop in the town that I live in and it was a little jewelry store. And one of the gals there used to get migraines. And another gal told her just to sit down one time um, near the front window and put her hands just around her head. And within moments, the girl's migraine was gone. And I just was so fascinated by that. And it reminded me of what I had seen in the imagery in Greece. And I wanted to learn more about that. So I did undertake studying energy healing and um, different forms of of, um, crystal therapeutics and magnetic healing. And I was really, really interested in it. And I really immersed myself in it for a few years. And um, I ended up starting to teach it myself. And just from the classes that I was teaching, from the people that I was working with um, as a practitioner of those modalities, I was seeing that there were some like really miraculous sort of inexplicable kind of things happening during their sessions. And somebody told me, well, you know, there are energy lines that run through the body and that's what yoga is for. Yoga is designed to help clear those lines out um, and build your chi and so, or your vitality. So that interested me and to make a long story short through a series of um, intuitions and uh, some some strange things that happened that led me in this direction. I, I did end up practicing yoga and um, studying it very intensely. I went to India and studied there and um, studied a little Sanskrit and um, a little Ayurveda at that time as well and um, taught yoga for many years. And I could see the direction that it was going in was becoming 
a little bit less of the energetic um, cultivation aspect of it and and a little bit less of the philosophical and spiritual and meditative aspect. It was kind of like that was being overshadowed by more of the active asana practices. And that wasn't the direction I was heading in. I was kind of heading into being more involved with using it as a, as a medicine for mind, body, and spirit. So I decided to go to acupuncture school because again, it was a system that taught you how to understand the rhythms of the energetic flows in the body and also how to treat those for yourself and for other people and i was also interested in herbology and there's a you know an herbal component to if you go to chinese medicine school as well as acupuncture school acupuncture is actually a bodywork modality that falls underneath the umbrella of chinese medicine so like in China, if you say you're a Chinese medicine practitioner, that means that you do internal medicine and you use herbs. And if you say you're, you're an acupuncturist, that means that you're an acupuncturist. So it, it can be differentiated into those two, but acupuncture falls under that, that main umbrella of which also medical qigong is a part and various other bodywork modalities. And if you, so, if you practice ancient Chinese medicine or Chinese medicine, you could potentially do acupuncture too, right? But if you're an acupuncturist, you wouldn't do practice Chinese medicine. Isn't there a, a, a slight variation in those like that? Like one does right. both, but the other one only does one. Right. So like the way that the training programs in the West are, are set up, you can choose to do both tracks or just the acupuncture track. Mm. Okay. So if you're like in, in, in North America, I believe it's the same in Canada. If you're um, a Chinese medicine practitioner, then you're, you're also trained in acupuncture. But if you're an acupuncturist only, then you may not be trained in the internal medicine piece with the, with the medicinals. Yeah. Okay. So, Sorry to so, interrupt yeah. you. You can keep on going on. I just wanted that little bit because I, I know from reading your book that there was like a, a clear definition that like, you know, like one, you know, if you if you practice like one side, you had, you know, both capabilities, you know, so I just wanted to add that little bit of clarification there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, and something interesting keeps popping in my head. I don't want to sound, you know, too woo woo or anything, but one of the things that happened that led me to go to acupuncture school it first led me to go to um to to study yoga and go to india was i was having a bodywork session done called zero my zero balancing and during that session i very very clearly heard the word ashtanga like and i'm not like overly psychic i don't like always see auras or anything like that occasionally rarely i'll see something in a healing session but for the most part i'm pretty basic you know feet on the ground type person and um and so when i heard that word i looked it up and it turned out to be one of the primary lineages in the yogic tradition and so i started off there and then when i ended up in india Interestingly enough, a gal that arrived at the yoga school I went to on the same day and we registered in the office at the same time was a zero balancing practitioner. And I had a session with her and then there was the very clear message to go to um, Chinese medicine school from there, which I thought was really interesting because it was the same exact modality. And from each of those, it kind of gave me the nudge to, to 
make that leap into the next place that I was already questioning, you know, what, what is it that I want to do next? See, you know, you know what I mean? And I love that you fact that you mentioned, and I, I think this is like a really key piece of information for like, not only for me to hear from you, but I think for other people to hear too, is that, that you say, you know, like you're, you're very feet on the ground. Like there's a party that makes me want to think like, you know, like that, you know, like that, that you want to interject that in there. So it's not just, you, you know, like you're, you want to see things with your own eyes, you know, but sometimes you may not be able to explain it because that's really how I feel. And especially after doing more investigation, you know, into these topics and, you know, reading your book and, or like, you know, almost completely reading your book is that I really feel like there's these, these things that happen in, in my life that I just wanted to label like as by chance, but it's really interesting to me now to be challenged with the concept that somebody has clearly defined like thousands of years ago why I felt the way that I felt and it's really been hard for me to say I want to fully commit to believing that but I can't deny it now it's not like somebody in a back alley that I met is coming up with this random philosophy like this is right. gone through thousands of years of refinement to be able to come up with these ideas and I'm like, now I can label them. So now I'm being, being extremely challenged of what I right. believe in. And it's hard for me sometimes because I am yeah. very much like feeling like I want to hold it in my hand. I want to see it with my eyes. But I know I literally cannot explain some of the things that have happened to me like in my life or some of the feelings that I get inside. Um, but now I feel like I've opened this door and if I'm willing to walk through it, I can gain a lot of clarity. So, you know, like I, I, I really connect with the story that you're sharing because it's like, I have a tough time actually admitting that to some people, especially people who know me really well, because they're just like, you know, like, oh, let's do these science projects and like, let's do this. And that, but it's always very literal. It's very contextual. It's very like physical, like we're, we're doing it. So um, it's been great for me as a learning experience about myself. And then, so I love being able to connect with you because like, I, I feel as though that you're kind of that same way. Yes, yes, I am. I like to integrate whatever um, evidence-based science or evidence-based medicine I can into my education of other people about this topic, because I feel like that's the tradition that we've come from. That's our foundation in the West. And to completely disregard that as useless or meaningless just because it's not thousands of years old, I think is unwise. Right. And there there is a lot of there are a lot of good reasons for evidence based science. Um, it has its limitations, of course. Studies can be the cornerstone of how treatment is you know prescribed for a decade or so and then they can say oh well the studies that was based on weren't were flawed right so there it's not perfect either um and it's very difficult to analyze um a treatment in terms of medicinals for example from a chinese medicine a tibetan medicine or an ayurvedic medicine perspective because the lens through which the medicinal is chosen is very individual based upon the person that is going to be taking it. And the way that, you know, double blind placebo controlled studies are laid out 
it doesn't allow for that. It's a very all or nothing, right? You give one thing to 48 people and some of them you give a placebo and you see what happens. But those 48 people are 48 different, completely different environments, completely different ecosystems that that same medicinal is going into. So it's, it, it may affect those people in very different ways. Um, so that's sort of why it's been so challenging, I think, for the Western science community to fully accept Eastern medicine because it has language that sounds sort of woo-woo or hokey because we don't have the technology yet to completely measure the, all of the things that it's describing, but also because of that, that glitch in, in being able to test things mm -hmm. in the way that we're used to according to the scientific method. So, um, so yeah. Yeah, and you know, like, and I find like with that, like what, what we're talking about is like, uh, like a couple components there, like where's Western medicine gonna be in two, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years from now? Like when it's had like just the same amount of time, obviously the advancements could come like incredibly sooner than that. But like when you're just saying like, yeah. like actual time representation, you know, because like you said, it is still fairly new, but where's it going to be then? Like what, you know, like Eastern medicine like has been, but then I look at it too, where just when you're giving, you know, so say you're doing like a, you know, a study like in, in Western science now where, you know, like you, you have like all these like controls, these measures, these mediums you're going by, but um, again, like you are giving like one pill, it's other like the pill or the placebo to these 48 people but you're not really, you're not really in relation with them. Like what I feel like where like Eastern medicine's roots are based is like, I almost see like people just really absorbing another human being as that person. And that's how they kind of understood what some of these principles mean. You're not in a lab, you're not getting people to call in their symptoms, you know, like you're not like, you know, getting in like this, you know, mailing out or emailing out this like, you know, um, like this site or this questionnaire to fill out based on the symptoms you may or may not have. Like it was somebody who potentially actually sat with somebody or maybe in a very holistic setting or maybe like outside nature where your body's had a chance to be able to connect in. You could feel these different energies and yeah, you might not be able to mark or measure them, but they just had the, they were afforded like the individual time with this person and you know, like that's the one thing that I respect in Western medicine is having the, these options of you know private functional medicine where it is individualized to the person, you know. But like really, that's what I extremely value about Eastern healthcare is that it is about the individual. It's like you are different. There's not another person who's you know the same as you out there. You know, you have like different genetic markers. You know, like we have like every body's completely different. Everything's gonna affect somebody a little bit differently. Here's Here's our point that should be our homeostasis point at here, but even that is a lot more balanced of approach to be able to take because it is about you know like your energy, like your chakras, like your elements, like finding balance within those, and then starting from there, and then moving on, or even having that versus just being in like a five-minute appointment in a doctor's right. office. Right. Yeah. And the other that um, that is taken into account and in eastern medicine consultation is what is your environment like where you live mm -hmm. what is your home life like what do you do for work where where are you eight to ten hours a day what are you doing are you sleep you know there's there's also that piece it's not just quickly i've got you know nine minutes to assess before i have to go in the other room it's you're sitting and and like you said, almost kind of absorbing information from the person 
through their body language, through what it is that they choose to tell you, and um, through what you're perceiving with your with your you know your five six senses, um, and taking the time to do that. And sometimes it takes more time to do that because sometimes the longer you spend with a person, of course, the more information you're, you're going to glean from them. So, and the other interesting thing about um, Eastern medicine is that we, in every session, we look at the tongue and we take the pulse. So we're looking at the person's tongue to assess the state largely of, of their internal being, but of their digestion in particular is, is, a, is a primary reason that I look at the tongue. And in the, then we take their pulse to try and get a sense of, well, what's the, what's the dynamic that's really going on underneath the surface here? Because I think without even meaning to, we naturally omit information when we go to a practitioner, whether it's a holistic practitioner or an allopathic practitioner, um, whether we're nervous or we're so used to dealing with something that we don't think to bring it up or whatever. And a lot of times when you take the pulse, you can feel what the undercurrent is really like in the person's body and in their, and in their mind and, and how their energy is fluctuating as a result of those things. And then from there, we have more insight into what we can do to treat, um, you know, whatever the imbalance might be. So do you always take the, the pulse by touch so that you have a greater connection with the person or do you use like, you know, new standard tools to be able to measure pulse? Like how, how do you do that? Well, I do it with my hands, yeah. yeah. Do you feel so, like that develops? Cause like, to me, like that kind of speaks to like that experience, like what I was talking about where like people have taken the time, you know, because we have all of these ways to be able to disconnect ourselves as like human beings, but even simply as like, you know, somebody being under your care and you deciding to be able to physically touch them, to be able to connect with their pulse. Like that's gotta be able to start building that underlying connection with somebody where then you can right. treat them in a way or like you can understand them or like you can feel like the energy that their body is emitting, you know, at a greater degree than if you stood at arm's length away, hooked them up to a machine and read the numbers off a screen. Right, yeah, and there are practitioners that do that. They love electronics or whatever, or you know, whatever reason it is, but um, I mean, I've been taking the pulse now for 14 years and I'm still, I consider myself a beginner still. Yeah. Um, why do you, why story, do you say that? Because there's so much information in it. And when I feel like when you have a busy practice, like I do, there's, it can be, it can be limiting the amount of information that you can actually get because of having to stay on schedule and the other things that arise in that clinical context. If you um, had a perfect amount of time to be able to spend with an individual and just connecting with their pulse, like, like what would that be? I know it's probably different for everybody and the feeling you're gonna get from that person, but I don't even know the the feeling or like what information you're talking about. So I would love to know like what you would think an appropriate amount of time is, but I'd also love to be able to know the things that you're looking for, the things that you feel when you're taking somebody's pulse. I think the appropriate amount of time, I mean, is like a minute or two, yeah. maybe. Um, you have to be completely present in order to feel what it's telling you. 
you have to put aside what you're thinking it's going to tell you mm-hmm. you know what i mean and just be open to it so that that takes the headspace of the practitioner to be pretty clear and present and um and and i don't like to linger and stay in someone's pulse for too long the more you're touching the pulse the more it's changing and also the deeper you go in the pulse the less comfortable the person might be with it and then that will change the pulse so i don't like to stay too long i usually probably stay it depends what i'm doing too like if i'm just checking in with like a repeat client that i see a lot i know very well um i just may need to like dip in for a moment if i'm doing like a prakruti or a deep constitutional assessment I take a little bit longer and I go back and forth a couple of times during the session because I want to double check myself because it's a very subtle, um, it's a very subtle uh, reading that you're getting. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then some days, you know, I slept better the night before or something. So that will determine it as well. Like there's sometimes I can go right in, boom, I get it. There are other times I go in, I'm like, okay, I'm going to check that again in 15 minutes or, you know, an hour or whatever. So it's difficult to say. It, there, there's a couple of interesting things about pulse diagnosis. One is um, I've heard of the Dalai Lama, one of the Dalai Lama's former doctors, who could, Yeshi Dondin, I think it was, who could dip into somebody's pulse and not only assess what was happening with them at the moment and what the conditions leading up to that were, but also be able to predict if they stayed on that track where they'd be six months from now. Wow. Yeah. And then the other thing is, um, I think it was Dr. Laud was talking once in a class and he said that uh, there are practitioners who can imbibe the essence of a medicinal through the pulse into the person so it's like they took that plant. Mm-hmm. So like one of the, one of, I think the example he gave was with Brahmi. Brahmi is a, a nervine tonic. It helps to calm the nervous system and help the person feel more mentally clear. And um, it was with that, that the person, the, the doctor could just hold the pulse and think or recite the mantra of Brahmi in order to affect the person in, in the same way as if they had actually ingested the herb. Yeah, so, I mean, that's goal, like a really high level of, of skill. Yeah. <laughs> See, and you know, and even like, you know, for like the, the skeptics that may be like listening to this, like to any degree, you know, like even when you look at it that like if you, if you want to believe it, if you want to believe a portion of it or if you want to believe nothing at all, like that's really no different than like from like, I mean, if you want to discredit it, it's no different than if you gave somebody like a placebo pill and they actually had, you know, like, like the actual effect, you know, it's just like, well, this yeah. is going to cure your migraine. Like, it's that exact same thing. Like sometimes I just like where we, I think in, in Western culture would be that is like we first jump to being a skeptic of it. So we don't even allow this even like potential placebo effect to, to kick in if that's what it is. But never mind, there's the fact where like you can't deny that there's going to be this other component to it too where it is going to be true for some people. Right. Well, you don't have to believe in it. A practitioner can feel your pulse and and, and feel what they feel regardless of whether you believe or not, right? So, yeah. you know, we can feel the pulse and tell if the person has is going to come down with a cold in the next day or two. 
if they've just eaten, if they haven't eaten enough, if they've got high blood pressure, if they're leaning toward prediabetes, there are many things that we can feel from taking the pulse. Um, if there's an active in, in like a dormant infection that's about to become active, like you can feel that stuff in the pulse. And um, so there's no belief required as far as the client goes with that. And um, so that's one thing. And then another thing I'd like to say is, and this ties into what you were saying about um, what about like the the story that I shared about these like kind of intuitive things that came through that helped to guide me in, in my life choices on those two occasions. And that is that we all have this ability to pick up on stuff that we can't necessarily explain. And we all have the ability to kind of stifle it. And so I don't think there's a person alive that can't say they haven't had the experience of thinking of someone and then the phone rang and it was them or thinking of somebody and then they bump into them in the grocery store or whatever it is. It's like there is that web of life. There is that connection and there is that information coming through to our brains. We may not know how, but it's there. And, and some people are practicing being able to be open to that information. Mm -hmm. And that information is similar to what a practitioner, an Eastern medicine practitioner is opening themselves up to when they're working with a client. Because we're trying to understand like the fluid circulation in that particular client's body, if there's stagnation anywhere. And, and we're doing it from the perspective that we are sort of, we have like some kind of an embodied understanding of the five elements and how energy feels to us how fluid feels to us how dense tissue feels to us and where it may be feeling a certain way that it shouldn't in a certain spot or something along those lines you know so and you have to you just like you you practice opening yourself up to that information being able to come through without blocking it just like you would practice to practice rowing or practice horseback riding or anything like that. And then anyone who has done anything like that also knows that there is an intuitive, like a Zen-like um, awareness that arises in any practice that you put enough time and energy into. Well, and I, it's, and it's completely different. Yeah, and I think like a, like a few like key things there, like we were talking about, it's like, I don't think that anybody can deny that there's not a person on this planet that hasn't felt intuition which I feel is like a big part of like, that's just a standard, like no, like to discredit like intuition would be like one of the biggest injustices to us as like a, a human being. So like simply if you're willing to admit that you have felt intuition, then you can connect with this methodology like wholeheartedly in a certain type of way because we've all felt that. You know, and then from like an athletic standpoint, like when we all talk about when the stars align, you know, proverbially, like when the stars align, I'm having my, my on day or for some reason, the stars align today, like for some reason, I just did really well, you know, like in all these things. And that's like, that's the athletic chase. That's the endeavor. Like that's why we keep on coming back is for that one time, maybe every two months or six months or a year that like we have that moment where it's like you were free of breath, you were free of 
physical ailment. You are free of all the known limitations of what your body can go through. And you know, like that's what just always keeps us like coming back is like those moments. And you know, like also too, you know, like I don't want to go too far down this road, but just as like in a comparison where you're saying that you're, we're all practicing or people who are practicing Eastern style medicine or, you know, energy based medicine or things along these lines, they're practicing something they may not be able to clearly define, but they know that it exists. Well, it's the same thing as like, quantum mechanics nobody can and that's strictly science but nobody has the capacity to thoroughly understand quantum mechanics we just know that this theory exists but we can't we don't have the capacity right now as human beings to understand it we just know it's there so why if people are willing to buy in that these principles are there why on the complete other spectrum that like you know like eastern medicine based principles wouldn't be just as valid in that same scenario Right. Yeah. 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 That's well put. Yeah. Um, so, like, a, a few of the questions that I had um, for you too, just um, so we can talk about them, is why just um, like Chinese medicine? I know you kind of explained this to you because it's a, a, a feeling how you or a feeling you got in a path you feel like you were chose to express um, with Chinese medicine and Ayurveda. But um, you talk about some other principles in your book too of like ancient medicines and ancient cultures. And obviously, you know, like us in Canada and the United States know all about, you know, First Nations culture and, you know, like their medicinal practices. Um, you know, like why, why stop at those two? Or like, are you intrigued? I know you briefly covered some of the other ones in your book, but like, um, like mm-hmm. how well versed are you in the others? How many more is there? Like, because I, oh I'm, I'm so intrigued as a person that's been indoctrinated in a Western way of thinking, and it's taken over 30 years to be able to kind of get out of that or try to start to climb out of that, oh, why we ever discredited all of these other practices when they've had so many years of vetting and so much understanding and there's, there's, there's so much life and substance behind them, why we just totally abandon them, like it is, bananas to me like it's just mind-boggling sometimes right yeah I'm not sure that I have the answer for that I think the first thing that pops into mind is lack of understanding Um, with indigenous cultures I think more quote-unquote civilized cultures have uh, sort of a hierarchical view of of who's on top and, and who's on bottom and I think that has something to do with it too um and maybe fear maybe you know we're just afraid of what we don't understand or what looks messy or you know i'm not i'm not really sure i don't i don't entirely have the answer to that but i would say that every indigenous culture on the planet has their own system for healing that combines um the physical the mental emotional and the spiritual realms and um, at least all the ones that I know of. And there are, I I particularly focus on Chinese medicine Ayurveda because um, that's just kind of what I I fell into at first. And I have always been interested in Chinese and um, Indian cultures. Um, I also am interested in Native American culture and and in their healing practices as well. I'm very interested in the shamanic aspect of their healing. Um, and they, there are, I, I drink 
Native American herbal tea blends and um, uh, I'm sure I, I just haven't really gotten into researching too much about I've read a little but I haven't researched too much about the different um, like poultices they may use on wounds or or things like that just because I have the training and in Chinese medicine I have the the herbs accessible you know to me to use if I need to um, but I certainly have a great respect for all of that wisdom um, regardless of what culture it comes from and um, probably, you know, there's in, in, in cultures around the world, indigenous or not, there are locales where folk, quote unquote, folk remedies or, or the wisdom that's been passed down through generations from their elders is still in use today um, regarding dietary recommendations and lifestyle recommendations and, and the usage of food and herbs as medicine. Yeah, and seeing we had um, Sohail Montehede on on the podcast, and you know he was talking about when they went into the Congolese jungle and them getting sick. I think it was his wife that ended up getting sick, if I remember correctly. Um, and they went to like their natural healers, and the one thing that he was expressing is that that in the Congolese jungle, like their natural way of medicine, like like each practitioner had their singular thing that they knew, but they knew everything about it. So it's like they could identify they almost had kind of like this triage system that they would go through in you know like this Congolese jungle and then you would be directed to the person who could like who had the most knowledge and nobody outside that tried to plot that course or chart that territory you know because they just they left it completely to that one person because it was like their life's mission was just to just study and practice and understand that one singular thing and when I heard that I just respected that so much about medicine because like our bodies are so complex and there's millions of tools to be able to complement like this this body that we have, these tools that we have, to expect like a singular person to be able to walk into somebody's office and say, you should know all of that is tough. And I feel like because we're set up to think like that is that when we can't have an immediate impact on somebody's life, like a system or a way of life or a philosophy or a methodology, like it gets discredited because, you know, in Western medicine, you can have an immediate impact. We're like, I take this pill and I almost immediately feel something. So like, that's the result that I want, you know, but like what, what we forget is it's just like, it takes time. And if we want real change or real understanding, like, like, it is an investigation and you know, like we need to go through it. We need to afford, you know, people like yourself the opportunity to even have a comprehensive understanding of how unique we are as an individual. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, go ahead. It's like they had they had like a uh specializations yep. in that in that society and um to the point where they could probably know all of the connections to the other specializations that, as well through that portal of whatever it was that they you know specialized in but if it got to the point where they needed more balance brought to one of the other areas they'd probably send the person there whereas here we have specializations but um it's not as in it's not that in depth right like if you if you're immersing yourself in one topic like all day every day and almost like becoming the 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 channel for for that topic 
um, then you're going to see how it connects to all of the rest of life and in such a way as um, that is going to make it so that you can just you have just such a big not just that specific viewpoint but the bird's eye view of how it is going to interact with everything else as well when, and when so, we look at from like a continued healthcare perspective after the treatment i think like that's paramount is just knowing like what avenue to properly send somebody down instead of like you know potentially drink plenty of fluids and get some rest and just like right, well right. what if what if somebody's like drink plenty of fluids and go for a walk you know like what if like drink plenty of fluids and go you know sit in your garden you know like like there's all yeah. these different avenues that potentially you could look at but like when you like what you were saying is like when these people specialize it and just and they're immersed in that and they're connected with all of the other you know avenues that can potentially come with that like like to me like that's where complete healthcare comes in because right. again like that's that's what i'm seeking for in my life and that's what i want more people to seek for in their lives which led me to this road of like wanting to read your book is because there's a big difference between like healthcare and disease prevention and disease management. And that's where like I find that like like our Western way of life has just kind of defaulted into this like global disease management category. You know, but what we're forgetting is like we're hyper accelerating like the diseases from hap or and they're gonna happen so that we can manage them instead of looking at like you know how do we prevent them you know like and how do we start peeling those onion skins back and how can we all cooperatively work together to be able to get people down the road you know like where i might lead teams of people like out into the back country and like my my gift is to be able to offer people a connection with nature to be able to and then they you know go to somebody like you you know where you do a lot more of like an in-depth like analysis and like a treatment plan you know but like everybody has like this synergistic like health and wellness feeling you know and we're working together versus just like well i need to go to my doctor who's usually only really used to seeing these top 10 things and if it's not one of these top 10 things i'm probably gonna get misdiagnosed which you know like through this podcast and just knowing so many people like it's so rampant like misdiagnosis you know like because there's just not the time or the opportunity to be able to understand you know like what is of somebody's like health care needs and I think that mainstream primary care, emergency care practitioners are operating kind of on autopilot, just like, you know, sometimes you get in your car and you don't always know how you got home. Like, it's like, we all only have so much energy in a day to focus, to communicate in, in in the present with someone else and be present with someone else so that when you get inundated with person after person it they probably have to go into this kind of like you know okay cut and dry black and white we'll run these tests da 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 da, da it looks like this it's almost like they they probably don't have the energy by the middle of the day to even deal with another person yet they have to push themselves through and so one of the first things i think that goes when you do that is your intuition because you're just operating sort of on like survival get through the day mode right you're not going to be able to really tune into people when they come through the door and i think that um i i, I think that there are some practitioners in western medicine that are really not happy with that model, you know, because they're getting burnt 
and they want to have a connection. A lot of doctors did go to school to help other people and heal them, not to just dispense medications. And, um, and, and I think that that intuitive piece is something that some doctors do still use. And when they do, there's probably less incidence of misdiagnosis, right? It's like, it's when they're on that autopilot that they're just kind of going through the motions and then people get lumped in one category or have a misdiagnosis or something gets missed. But if they were actually set up to, to take the time to, to be more, you know, one-on-one -on -one with people for longer than they have, then they might catch more of these things, you know, because they'd be able to use their intuition more. Medicine is an art. Mm -hmm. It's an art and a science, but it's still an art. And that intuitive piece is what is really important. And it's not like some woo-woo, you know, thing off in the ether. It's something that you feel in your own body. And if you're listening to your body, you're going to feel whether you think someone needs a little extra attention in one area or not, or if, is this really a cold or is this, you know, something else, whatever it may be that they're, that they're doing their differential diagnosis about. It's like, if you're able to take the time and the space to tune into yourself, you're going to use yourself as a barometer to, to know whether or not you need to go down a different road with a specific patient. And I just think that a lot of them just don't even have time to do that anymore. See, and you know, and I think a lot, like how much time would we afford our healthcare professionals if we really just had a, a, a baseline understanding and acceptance ourselves about how much the personal responsibility we have of taking our own health care into our own hands too where like we don't have to go to the doctor for a lot of these like small like issues because like a lot of a lot of doctors visits are completely like irrelevant. like you wouldn't necessarily have to go again if we just took the time to be able to like rely on ourselves and our own intuition of the things that you know like we need you know to do as people or like if we were just willing to be able to pass down information from generation to generation like you know in like what you know i'm sure people have like eastern medicine or indigenous cultures or first nations where like there was more people who just had an understanding of base level health care so that if you did need to go see somebody who had more knowledge than you it weeded out it was like a like a self-regulated uh, triage system before you went because when you did go the problem was a lot more serious so it probably cut down a lot on the volume of people going which then gives them the opportunity to be able to spend more time because i could imagine from like a doctor's standpoint how frustrated it is frustrating it is to go to work every day and just deal with a lot of issues where people could be clearly dealing with them like on their own if they really yeah. chose to want to, but all they're kind of looking for is a prescription or, you know, something along right. those lines instead of just saying like, you know, what's really the problem here is like your lifestyle or, you know, like you're not wanting to understand, you know, or investigate like how you could, you know, like that you do need to get some more sleep in, you know, like, yes, you only drink coffee and wine every day. So of course you probably not like hydrated, you know, like some of these like base yeah. level things that we should take personal responsibility in too, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I want to kind of dive in a little bit too, because I know like reading like your book, I, I feel like one thing that I want to just know, one of the many things I want to know more about um, is the yin and the yang, because I actually okay. didn't know um, a whole lot about like everybody's seen the symbol. It's there. And, you know, just like, but now understanding like the small circles, like the, the, the seed, like the root of like yin and yang and like vice versa. Um, 
but just like like throw it all out there for me like everything that you know okay. like just treat me like a sponge because i'm just i'm dying okay. to know it's one of the things i'm intrigued about okay cool so it's a really foundational principle in eastern medicine particularly in chinese japanese korean medicine and um the yin and yang symbol is that round symbol with the there's a white um, almost paisley that looks like maybe the shape of a fish on one side and a black one on the other and in the center of the bulbous portion of the white is a little black dot and in the center of the bulbous portion of the black is a little white dot and so that symbol that is representation it's a representation of all of existence and all of existence basically it's saying in the known part of our existence is context dependent. So even though there's black and white in the symbol, nothing is ever just black or just white. And that circle that surrounds and joins those two things is indicative of the fact that there's something outside the circle. Oh. And that's the avyakta or the wu, it's the primordial like space-time before the Big Bang. So right now, anything that is in existence is within that yin and yang symbol. And so the one side of the symbol is representative of yin, and yin is the, the black side of the symbol or the shadowed side. And within that yin, there's a little tiny speck of light of yang and then the white side or the lighter shaded side of the symbol is the yang side and that's got a little tiny speck of yin within it and the the reason that they're shaped the way that they are is to give the image of movement so the fact that these two things are there is not static is that and not only are they always context dependent but they're also moving against one another. So there's always a movement present and everything in existence is always working toward homeostasis. It's always working toward finding a balance. So sometimes we're, we're more young, sometimes we're more yin. And that friction that gets created as a result of the movement of these polar opposites against one another is the chi. So the chi is the vitality or the vital energy that animates everything that is alive. And so the yin in the symbol is considered like, I think I explained this in the book that the yin is looked at like the shadow side of the mountain. So when the sun is, is shining on one side of the mountain and it's all filled with light, the other side of the mountain is darker and it's more moist and it's cooler and those are the qualities of yin whereas that side that the sun is shining on is much warmer and drier and obviously lower and those are the more the qualities of yang so in terms of the physical body there are substances in the body that are considered mostly yin or mostly yang. There are physiological processes in the body that are more yin or more yang. And there are, um, there are conditions that are actually more yin or more yang.
and in terms of treating those things in the body or trying to bring more balance to the to the body we would if we need to create more yin in the body we would give more yin nourishing substances if we need to decrease yin in the body we would give less yin nourishing substances and perhaps more yang strengthening substances and vice versa and so that's the basic principle by which eastern medicine works and the body is not considered isolated from from the rest of the environment it's part of the air it's connected to the ground and to other people and to climatic factors and it's influenced by other people and by climatic factors so the connection between the body and the rest of society and the rest of the environment is crucial in determining what's happening with a person from an eastern medicine perspective and we're always taking into account yin and yang so are there too many fluids in the body or is the body too cold is the body too hot is it too inflamed is there a, a is there an imbalance in the metabolism is there some kind of, something going on where the yang is depleted or deficient that's not allowing for proper metabolism as is one example so that's sort of like how the ancients look at the entirety of existence as having these polar opposites that are again all context dependent so nothing is ever like pure pure again or pure pure yang there's always sort of another side of the coin and and the yin and the yang are intricately uh woven into one another in such a way that you cannot have one without the other once yin and yang separate then there is no more an entity or being they there cannot be a strictly yin human being or a strictly yang human being in fact when the when the yang separates that's a very serious condition and it and it's one where it has been cautioned in the ancient texts can lead to the death of the body so um does that answer your question? Yeah, well, yeah, no, like, absolutely. And I, I feel like it's one of those topics that just can be expressed for hours because it's, like, obviously we have, like, this, this like, everybody's seen the yin and the yang, like, symbol. I think, like, well, pretty much everybody shouldn't speak like that. But, right. like, it, it's pretty common to have seen that imagery. But, like, like, what it represents and then how that relates, like, to your day and, like I could be like way off of this, but one of the things that I was thinking like as as I was reading this, and this might be like way too sky high or, you know, like completely in the wrong direction, but I was thinking like, you know, from like a real like layman's terms was, you know, like I can't be, I can't feel energetic without being tired. You know, I can't feel full without, you know, feeling hungry. Right. Like, exactly. like these, these balances back in, you know, and forth, like, you know, like I can't be strong without first breaking my body down. Like, you know, like I, like, you know, I can't, you know, be, you know, like emotionally strong unless if I've gone through times that have challenged that, you know, like I look at like a lot of these things where it's like, I don't know if those are relative comparisons, but the one thing that I, that I loved was that, you know, knowing that there's like a seed of like, you know, yin and yang and, you know, vice versa. Like, I think like that really helped me have like an understanding of like, like what it means, but then also that like, 
like that can grow and it can recede, you know, and like that's where you say like the fluidity of the two and why it's not like a straight line is because, you know, like there's nothing that's life that is truly static. You know, like that's like one of the big things about all life and all aspects of life is that it is truly dynamic and just knowing through that these processes and everything that's happening in, in this known world and the unknown world being very dynamic i think that we need to know and it's refreshing to me knowing that there is these seeds of change in the unknown because you know like that's where even comes back to like saying to me it's like this too shall pass it's like well as soon as you say you're going through that moment in life it's saying okay well this too shall pass it's like i'm going through this moment but like that seed is in there i know it's in there i just need to be able to dynamically get through this and then i will have a little bit more homeostasis on the other side yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. You know, and like a, a few things that like, um, I guess like kind of like in an aspect like this, you know, that I wanted to throw you away because I've always felt like that I have um, this really like interesting connection with like the environment around me, especially when I'm out in the backcountry and, and again, especially by myself, you know, where like, yeah. like I when I'm in that environment and, and, and when I'm by myself and I have this true connection, I, I explain to people that like, you don't know tranquility until you're in an environment, you know, where you're so far into the backcountry where like, you might not see a bird, you might not see, like there's no representation of any known life except for you in this world, you, you visually see things, you know, but when you take that time to be able to, to stop and just be, I feel the magnitude of, and I know that this is an expressive example, but I feel the magnitude of the destruction to be able to get to that point because it wasn't until very recently and it was really after starting to read your book was that when I was standing on the top of mountains, I was, and I'm looking at them, I'm like, this is awe-strikingly beautiful. Like you, you can't get more beautiful representations but I'm like, the devastation that it took to be able to get to this point, you know, like the Earth's crust collided, you know, like these, these plates are shifting, like it was so violent to be able to get here. And it was like, once I had like that understanding and like, and I looked at it that way, it's almost like I released all of this, like this, this energy, like inside of me that was tied down to that, like with inside myself. And I, because I've just seen these representations of like, you know, where there was this heavy destruction in this world and I could see these representations, but through time and if enough time passed and if you were willing, there was this beautiful component and this tranquility that could last. And then because of that, nature's offering me that tranquility, but I also have the opportunity to offer that tranquility to other people as well. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah. Things like those are the things that to me, like I don't know how to really explain that except for I can put words to the experience, but I don't know how to explain that like inside myself. And that's what like, why I wanna, you know, like, you know, finish this book, why I wanna talk to you, why I wanna investigate more. Cause I feel like I'm on the cusp of maybe starting to explain why these things have been like that because I've been heavily connected with nature for 36 years. Like there's, I've always been outside. I grew up on a farm in Southern Alberta. You know, my dad always used to take me hunting, fishing. We always used to be climbing mountains. I've always been outside. I played outdoor sports. 
you know, now I spend an incredible amount of time outside. I've always been very connected to that environment. And then now through this podcast, like learning and understanding like how all these environments are like super connected and how if we're just willing to be able to try to be open and to be able to understand that there's such value. Like there's an incredible amount of value that we can learn about like ourselves, even if you don't want to see a practitioner, you know, to be able to understand that, but just being in these environments and understanding like how cleansing they can be and it being that simple, which is where I think it kind of ties into the new Japanese principle of like forest bathing, where like it's like lowering your blood pressure, lowering your cholesterol, Mm -hmm. you know, like lowering your cortisol levels and like being like, you know, anti-stress where it's like just that environment alone. So like how can you argue that if we then ingest these materials in certain ways that that wouldn't enhance that experience even more? And that's like where my intrigue level is so high. So I was wondering if you, if you were willing to be able to take the same time out with like the yin and the yang to give us like like an overview of the elements in the body. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing that I thought of when you were talking about all that is in the Indian tradition, there is the trinity of Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. And so they have been, they are personified as being specific deities, but it's the energetic underlying those personifications is, is part of what you're describing. It's part of what happens in our bodies in, in a cyclic nature, whether it's birth through development to old age and death, or it's um going through the seasons in the year if it's the diurnal cycle or whatever it is there is this principle of sustainability which is is uh well we'll get to that after but sustainability um and this principle of destruction and this principle of creation so the the Brahma and Vishnu and Shiva are representative of these of this energetic and what you described standing on the mountain and having that sort of experiential insight, like kind of either download through you or come up from you, however it happened, um, of the, you know, tectonic plates crashing, all the destruction that needed to happen. That's like the Shiva energy. That's like that destroyer, that that fierce energy that is necessary to create the fodder through which new life can grow and um, creation can happen and be sustained for a while before, again, that sort of what we consider destructive energy arises again. And that happens, you know, in the life cycle of every cell in the body. I mean, it's all, there's the creation, there's the sustaining, and there's the destruction. And that's that's sort of a simplified version of of the five elements. So the five elements are in nature, in existence, in matter, I should say. Um, The five elements are sort of the, the building blocks. So depending upon which tradition we're we're talking about, um, they go they go from the most subtle element that in creation and then the next dense melt element 
arises from that and then the next dense from that until finally you come back to the earth because the earth is the most dense of all the elements and it encompasses it has as part of it all of the elements before it and so from like a chinese medicine perspective we look at the elements in the person's body uh, and determine which elements are in balance and which elements are out of balance and where in the body mind complex they are in or out of balance and we do that in in ayurvedic medicine as well but in ayurveda we have uh, more what's called the doshas or constitutional types and those are body mind types that are combinations of the five elements that were perceived to uh, arise in in regular patterns so in um ayurveda the five elements would be condensed into um either vata pitta or kapha so either into movement transformation or sustainability which sounds a lot like that brahma shiva vishnu thing um and so there's that piece and then the other way we can look at the five elements when they consolidate into these doshas is as um dryness uh heat or fire and wetness and so if we take what we know as the gunas which are the, the 20 primary qualities of matter we can determine which which mind body constitutional type of person is and also which foods they should be consuming to keep themselves balanced which activities they should be doing if it would be better for them to go to the mountains if it would be better for them to go stand by water or immerse their feet in it or meditate near it um so um the five elements like yin and yang are a part of everything in existence and they are they make up the physical form but they also have physiological functions in the mind and the body and in nature so it's not just like the five elements are these static things like metal isn't just metal metal is also the ability to let go do you see so it's yeah. like there's a there's a psycho spiritual um aspect to each of the elements and a mental and emotional aspect and also like a static physical aspect and so in chinese or in asian medicine medicine east asian medicine specifically um the five elements are called the five phases because like yin and yang they are never in one state for any for, uh, ad infinitum there's always like this transition that they that they go through and like do and it always flows um and sorry so it's um water metal fire wood so i go i do um yeah water would be like kind of down if you envision yeah. a circle water would be like at the base yeah and then up to the left maybe around nine o'clock would be wood wood and then well 12 o'clock would be fire yeah and then um maybe two o'clock would be metal and four o'clock would be earth 
Oh. That's kind of how I look at it. So I might, you know, you could even that out um, on that circle so that they they were all equidistant. But that's that's how I see it. So water nourishes wood. Wood feeds the flames of a fire. Fire can liquefy metal, and metal is is uh, feeds the earth, and then the earth holds the water. And that's, that's how it starts all over again. Is there is there typically like us as like human beings? Is there um, is there typically like on average like one of those elements that's off more than other, or is it really situational to the person? Or like is you know people's is their wood element off a little bit more? Um, like, and I'm talking just like a general average. Like if there's something out there. Yeah. Um, like, have you noticed a trend like that? Like, or in, if, if, the, if people do track trends like that, is it geographical? Like, you know, is it, you know, maybe like Canada and the United States, is it like our, our fire might be off a little bit more and, you know, in a place like, like Africa, is it, you know, maybe a little bit more of their, their waters off a little bit? Well, I guess that's a bad analogy, but like, you know, it's, uh, no, it's, it's an interesting question. I, you know, culturally, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I know that there are certain characteristics that are associated with the different elements. So like, for example, if you are out of balance wood, you're probably going to present with being more frustrated, irritable, judgmental of yourself and of others. And, um, just kind of you know, not going with the flow. And then um, if you're presenting maybe with out of balance fire, you, there might be more of a, um, there might be actual like heat conditions that you can see arise on the skin, for example, or, um, you know, when we say somebody's hot headed, that can be that their fire's up. But the fire is associated with the heart organ and the body. So usually if somebody's hot-headed, we look at that as more of a wood out of balance and that the wood's kind of dried out because the wood is associated with the liver. And the liver is responsible for the smooth flow of vitality and fluids throughout the body and blood specifically. So if there is any issue with the blood, the blood pressure, we're going to look at the liver. If there's any issue with um, just basically feeling like you're not going with the flow, feeling like the irritable, what I mentioned, you're, we're going to look at, at wood. If there is a lot of sadness, melancholy um, that a person experiences, we're going to look more at the metal or the lung energy. Um, if there are more like if there's more insomnia, palpitations, actual fright that a person experiences, like quick moments of fright, or easily startled, we're going to look at fire. If um, the person tends toward be, being more like sedentary and lacking motivation and really loves and craves sweets, we're going to look more at earth. If they have digestive upset, we're going to look at earth if the person is um in terms of water if the person is 
sort of really drained, like burn the candle at both ends, exhausted, like adrenal depletion kind of stuff, we're going to look at water. And those are vague generalizations, but that water is associated with the kidney energy. The earth is associated with the spleen and stomach. Um, and like I said, the metal is associated with the lungs, the heart and the fire and the liver gallbladder with wood. Yeah. See, and it's actually interesting that you bring up the, the water component because um, I was actually born with glomerulonephritis, nephritis, a, a kidney disease. Um, and uh, like it was severe, like I was hospitalized for it. And when I got into my early teen years and by absolutely no means was this ever like the goal or was I ever trying to achieve anything, but just going for the regular ultrasounds I had to go for like every year. Um, when we went the last time, like the, um, the person offering the scan, then the, my doctor that was analyzing it and who had been, uh, been a patient with my whole life, they're just like, it is uncanny. They're like, it's, they're like, you don't even have glomerular nephritis anymore. And they're like, it's not a disease that, that you can't cure it like that. It's like, once you have it, you have it. And they're just like, it's, it's pretty much gone. And they're just, and, but so it's like, it's things like that that have happened to me in my life where like i don't know why i can't explain it it literally makes no sense for the science that we know now and because yeah. even then like i wasn't intentionally trying to do anything the only thing that i can look back at it now are like these two things of like you know having um this strong connection with nature um and always eating very fresh foods because growing up on a farm so like I don't know if like those two things um, like played a role in it. You know like I've always been outside, always in nature. Like you know fresh local foods. Like if that played a part in it or it didn't, because I can't imagine that it was my lifestyle or by any conscious choice. But something was doing it. And the only common denominator in my whole life is like this intense connection with nature. Hmm, that makes sense. Yeah. And like talking about the forest bathing. There are all these um, studies that they've done that have found how it physiologically impacts us. Um, and another is that they're, the ions from even the greenery affect us. And the other thing is that the even the microbes that are present in the soil, if we sit on the ground, if we're, if we're breathing it in, if we're breathing in what the trees are giving off, the, the microbes go into our body and they can have a very healing effect as well. Well, see, and like this was actually something that I've talked about with people quite a bit since I did uh, the podcast a week or so ago with Daniel Winkler. He's a mycologist at Washington State. And like he was talking about how like, you know, like this, this fungus, this mushroom culture, like it's essentially like there's this like this web or this network that's growing underneath the soil. And the mushrooms yeah. that we see are only the fruits. So I started thinking, I'm just like, okay, well, you know, like when you're out in nature and you're a part of that, so say that, you know, like if you, you know, if you were nude sitting on the ground in nature laying there, like would you then be like a part of you be connected to this network? Because at UBC here in uh, Vancouver, um, there was a woman who was explaining to me that they tarped these hemlock trees with thick black tarps so that the, the hemlock trees couldn't go through photosynthesis, you know, but they were in the old growth forest where there's all these old growth cedars. They found through this network of the, like this fungus underneath the ground that the old growth cedars were supplying the sugars to the hemlock trees 
through this exchange because there's this barter system that happens between these mushrooms and these trees. And I'm like, there's no way, like there's no way that somebody can convince me now that, that that's the only time that that system could be tapped into. It's just the only, the immediate present exchange but there's no way like, you know, I'm not trying to sell that, you know, like we could lay down on the ground and be cured of all things. But again, okay. like it, it's one of these components that once I'm faced with this knowledge, because now I've looked at, well, if there's this network that covers the the floor of our forest that connects everything together. Well, that's like the fascia on our body or like our elements in our body or the yin and yang. Like there's all these representations that if you are willing to be able to find the similarities instead of trying to disprove what they all mean, like I think like that's where life homeostasis really comes into place because they're everywhere. These similarities are literally everywhere, even down to like how you explain and you do that. You explain that in your book is how when the sun's transferring through the day, it's causing yin and yang situations either that are um, extremely existential that are there or even situations that we've created because in relationship to the sun, we are creating yin and yang to this earth because we simply cast a shadow on the ground. Right. You know, so like right. there's all of these like extreme similarities that like we can't keep on denying them or like I, I should say I'm not willing to keep on denying that there's all these factors that are so similar and they come into play and like if you just want to be able to understand the similarities between them. Like it, it starts to become mind blowing. Like that's why I said I've read the same parts in your book so many times and I call people and I'm like, you'll never guess this. And then I'm like on the internet and I'm researching it. So I'm just like, and then I talk to people and they kind of throw a little bit other tidbit of information in there too. And I'm like, it's all around us. Like we are immersed in this world that like we've completely forgot about and we're completely out of touch of it. But the one thing yeah. I do love is I love seeing people come back to it. Like, this trend of millennial and zennials like going back into small um towns you know like that are you know in the mountains you know i used the uh this morning like fernie uh as an example where like these like all these you know people are moving into this small ski town and like taking it over and you go there and you're like what's happening like there's all these 30 to 40 year old couples with kids and they've massively taken over this town but it's a global phenomenon like i feel like yeah. we we know enough that us genetically we're being pulled there like we're being pulled there emotionally we're being pulled there physically like we just have to like just allow ourselves to be and say i do feel better like i do understand there's benefit of that me being there well if if i only really go into nature once a month well what if i was there once a week what if i was there once every day like you know like what if this was a part of my life how much better would i feel simply because of that if i still choose to drink every day or eat mcdonald's every day or you know like those kind of things all of those things aside you could simply just take a step into the environment and you will feel a lot more at peace just being a human being in general and i love that That's and chances are if you were to do that you wouldn't be craving mcdonald's so much or craving alcohol or sugar or whatever it is because there would be that shift toward you know more like greater wellness toward a sense of connection with yourself and with the environment that satiates us in a way that 
junk food just can't do. <laughs> well, and you know, and like, like it's a really good point because I find it's even like the more time that I spend it in nature now, the more I want to find out what I can eat when I'm here. Like, you know, like, then that's the whole reason why I stuck out, like, you know, Daniel being on the podcast. I'm like, well, there's thousands of mushrooms all the time. Like, I got to be able to eat some of these. They can't all want to kill me. Like, and there's all these right. other plants. Like, there's there's this forest for, and it's just, it, I, I feel it's a great opportunity that I live in the Rocky Mountains where I can just drive for 20 minutes and I'm literally in these mountains with a bounty of food for me but like what can I eat you know like like food sustainability is like all around us if we're willing to be able to step outside the box of just knowing like okay well a vegetable is a cucumber or you know like yes I don't have to just get my mushrooms from a grocery store or you know like I take people into the backcountry all the time and they're scared to drink the water in like a yeah. glacial um, lake. And I'm like, you can't get more pure water than this. I'm like, there's not a floating carcass in this water that you have to worry about. I'm like, this water's dripping off this glacier into this lake, like stick your face in it and just drink something, you know, like go hop in there. But like, we're, we're scared to step outside of just like, what is such a small part of life and i feel like this is knowing it's like physically but it's like emotionally like cognitively and like in every capacity or even just are willing to understand subjects like what we're talking about today like it takes a certain type of person to even open the door cognitively is saying like i want this information to come in because i can make real lifestyle changes because of it absolutely yeah um and this go ahead no no you go ahead it just reminds me what you said um, earlier about, I wonder why, you know, like when the settlers came in or whatever, they didn't honor the native healing practices or traditions or, or herbal wisdom or whatever. It's that same kind of thing, I think, is like you're describing people being afraid of drinking the water. And what, why is that? What have they been indoctrinated with? What, what is it that's really, you know, scaring them into not wanting to do that i think it's might be along the same vein see and it isn't the and see the the interesting part to me about that topic is all these people came from environments where this is what they were doing and then they just hopped in this boat they floated across this ocean and it was like okay forget all that like we're gonna completely chill like and that's what i don't understand it's like being out at sea for that long which you would think there would be a certain part of like you know being on the water and like connected with that environment and you know like and stopping at all these little places along the way that should connect you with all those things more not less but then we land on the banks of like this amazing new land and it's like we want to rewrite the entire script it's like you know because you think like a lot of the reason why we ended up here was to trade spices you know, but it's like in realizing like the benefit of trading spices, you know, through taste and through feel and through culture and through community, we ended up finding this land because of that and then devalued pretty much it all once we got here. Yeah. Um, and to kind of like segue into, um, I know we kind of, you, you briefly brought it up already, but um, is there any way that you could get into just a little bit more detail into like the three different body types? Yeah. yeah, so the first body type is Vata, 
And this is from the Ayurvedic teachings. It's, it's also, it runs parallel to Tibetan medicine as well. In Chinese medicine, we don't have the three constitutional types, but in Indian medicine, we do. Um, and there's vata, pitta, and kapha. And the simplest way to describe those things is as um, the vata being the principle of movement in existence, the pitta being the principle of transformation, and the kapha being the principle of sustainability. So you cannot have transformation and you cannot have movement unless you have some, you have to have sustainability in a system, whether it's an ecosystem of someone's body or an ecosystem of an environment in order to have the movement and the transformation. And if things aren't transforming, everything's just going to stagnate and be a blob. And if um, things aren't moving, same thing. So um, in the body, this uh, concept of vata or of movement is closely tied to the nervous system. So the nerve impulses, that quick traveling of information through the body, that's very vata dominant and governed by vata. Any kind of movement, the movement of one thought to another, the heart beating, the respiratory movement, the cerebral spinal movement, the fluid movement, um, anything in the body that moves is vata. You're being, some people, how they don't have the ability to sit still, right? That constant movement, that's more of like a vata thing. Being nervous or, um, you know, anxious, that's also more of a vata thing. Pitta is the law of transformation. So pitta is all of the chemical reactions in the body. Pitta is transforming your thoughts and emotions into something that you can work with. Pitta is digesting. So it is taking in information and not being overwhelmed by it and not having it go in one ear out the other, but really sitting with information and being able to embody it. Pitta is being able to take in sustenance, food and drink, and transform it properly so that it turns into nourishment for the mind and the body. Kapha is the principle of sustainability. So Kapha is like the bone, the muscle, the tissue of the body, the fluids in the body as well. So Kapha is related to the elements of earth and water. Pitta is related primarily to fire, secondarily to water. So Pitta is more like oily. Kapha is more like heavy and dense and mucousy. Pitta is more like oily and hot. And Vata is like dry and rough and mobile. And, and Vata is the elements of space, of ether, and of air. And so if one was to quickly want to assess themselves, at least on a physical level, think in terms of this. Do you feel more dry? Do you feel more hot? Or do you feel more mucousy or fluid or heavy? Do you feel like you like to move more, um, like, uh, like fight, flight, or freeze, like in, in that kind of a situation. Would you be the one who'd want to run out the door if faced with 
some kind of situation that stimulated your adrenals? Would you stand and confront the situation or person? Or would you um, kind of freeze and not know what to do? So those are sort of like the three types. Vata tends to be more, um, since it has that mobility, Vata types tend to be more mobile and airy and drawn to artistic pursuits and dance and um, just movement in general. And they don't like to sit still. And frame-wise, they tend to have like thinner bones. They tend to be more, uh, have more of a delicate appearance. Um, Pitta types tend to be a little bit more robust than Vata types. They tend to have more of an athletic build. They tend to run warmer. Vata types tend to run more on the cold side, maybe cold hands and feet. And um, Pitta types tend to be more, have that more like determined drive, more type A, maybe a little more aggressive. Um, more judgmental of, like I said, self and other. And then kapha types tend to be more sedentary. Um, They tend to come across to other people as more peaceful or just jovial and happy and content. Um, They tend to be like that friend that's sort of the rock of Gibraltar, you know, they always listen, they're good listeners. So again, the vata types tend to be more associated with dryness and mobility. Pitta types tend to be more associated with um, hotness and um, transformation and um, activity in the sense of kind of more competitive activity against yourself or against others. And then the kapha types tend to be more mucousy, more fluid, more earthy, more stable, more fixed. So when you said that, a thought that came to my mind, you know, and I love how you gave everybody there kind of like like a quick tutorial or assessment to be able to kind of understand who they are. Um, I think that's absolutely amazing. And a thought that came to my mind there was, I wonder if there's the same similar um, quick assessment with the elements or what elements would be out of balance in somebody. Um, but arguably, like we could say that there's a rise in vata energy in north america or in western culture um because of like you know like anxiety you know like like the anxiousness like the like depression like the symptoms that are correlated with that um like what does that mean to somebody like you where they see or do you agree that there's a rise in vata energy like you know being present in western culture um because like you explaining it like that like it it's like a window got opened up into like our society where like you can see it all around that Vata energy or Vata energy is like extremely high right now. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. And I have, I do believe that it has increased over the past decade for sure. Um, the, the distractions we have with even electronics, with the cell phones, with, um, the internet, it's just, if you, I recently took a week off and, and barely looked at my phone and I could see, like, I already knew that I was on it a little bit too much, but I could definitely see, like, by the time that week was over and I had to go back to, you know, looking at my email and stuff like that, 
I was just like, oh, this is, I can feel that it's, it drains our vitality. It really does. Because again, we, we have so much energy in a day, like from an Eastern medicine standpoint, we have so much energy in a lifetime in the yogic tradition. They might measure it according to heartbeats. Um, and so these practices of, of chi cultivation, uh, of, of cultivating our vitality were introduced thousands of years ago, because even thousands of years ago, people were wasting or leaking their energy somehow. And it was affecting them physically and, and mentally and emotionally. And, um, and so, you know, those things of, I'm sure had a lot to do with living in harsh environments where, you know, there wasn't the protection that we have with the homes we have today, for example, and the luxuries and the medicines and things like that. But um, it's also like the mind has always kind of been an issue for for humans and um, being able to 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 be in a space where you feel connected to nature as you do, um, I think has has probably been there's always been this kind of mind body sort of phys- uh, philosophical uh, question throughout time and and so with these chi cultivation practices I mean they realized that we can leak our vitality and that we do and that there are things that we can do to conserve it so that we have it stored in case we need it and in the ayurvedic tradition chi or prana is associated with vata energy that energy of movement and that energy of the nervous system the blinking of the eyes the taking in of information and in some ways information itself i had a a yoga teacher in india um uh, bns iyengar and he told me once that the chi or the vitality in the body is is the communicator it's the information that goes between the mind and the body, that goes between the environment and the being, that that communicates between different parts of the body. And so if we're constantly like grabbing this device and taking in information, that's ex- that's adding to the vata of the body and the mind. If we're... Co- Vata is about movement. If we are, the more we move around, that's beyond the movement that is best for us, that's going to add to the vata in the person's mind and in their body. If we are rushing around when we eat, that's going to add to the vata because of the speed at which we're doing something that should be done more slowly. So we're creating an, an imbalance just in the way that we eat when we're like rushing between clients or rushing to get, you know, to from work to the school to pick up the kids or whatever it might be. Um, that rushing aggravates the vata. It makes us less grounded. It makes us more in our heads and lessen our body. And that I think that that problem, that vata is an epidemic for us really. It, because 
it tends to be that 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 movement is addicting Mm -hmm. so it's like okay i could do this so i'm going to do a little more you know all right i can fit in that extra meeting i can fit in that extra soccer practice i can fit in that late night news show so i can be upset about politics the whole next day and maybe not sleep at night (laughs) you know it's like there's so many things and there's so much information coming at us all the time and we're in a place where we can just quickly you know you wake up to go to the bathroom at night and you can lay back down and go to sleep or oh i just had a thought maybe i'll look it up on my phone real quick you know or you can't fall back asleep and so you're on the phone and that just it doesn't just affect the melatonin i think it affects more than that and it hasn't just been like verified with some scientific study but um it unsettles the nervous system Mm -hmm. for sure and i think that even with this i mean especially with the state of the world right now i think not only are people focused on the safety of themselves and the planet right now but also for their future generations and their children and their grandchildren and they may be watching the news and following different um, avenues of, of information pertaining to things like that that are very unsettling because it's very like root chakra stuff. It's about how you, can you feel safe in your environment? Can you feel safe even walking down the street, sending your kids to school, whatever it is. But it's also that we have this interconnected sort of matrix that we are all a part of. So even if we're not watching the news, we're still getting that vibe of everyone else's unsettled energy and it's still affecting us you know like you know just to cut you off real quick uh, the most immediate example that i see of that all the time is when you walk past somebody on the street and it's like they don't want to say anything to you anymore because the common pleasantries that used to be exchanged um, are not valid anymore for a magnitude of different reasons where that would be yeah. the spin-off effect of living in the world that we live in today where like I know that I heard something about a year ago like statistically like us living in Canada and the United States um, on average that if you left your child into the car and ran into the grocery store for five minutes it'd take 30,000 years for something to actually happen to them like numbers wise but we want to feel like and we're told that if we left our child like in the car within like 60 seconds that child would be gone or they'd be hurt or like something along those lines but it's like so you have this angst amongst you and then we project that angst upon other people and then like you said we will then judge other people when they do stuff it's like well why did you say hi to that person on the street it's like i don't know because they're a human being you know and like right like that's what i always try to like explain to people first it's like you know before i'm a man or a woman i want to try to be just a human being first you know because like you know like that's i think like the big base of it all is like again we used to have this like cohesive web that we always used to live by where if our kids were walking down the street you knew they were safe because there was a hundred other parents within two blocks that would watch out for your children now those other hundred parents are looking to cast stones typically about what you're doing with your children so that they can feel better about what they're doing based on like this this imagery that we have to like want to try to live up to or project ourselves to be you know, instead of living in this cohesive community where it could be a lot easier. Where, which is probably what's drawing, like you said, those people to that community and this, this movement that's happening where people are moving out of the cities into the country. 
mm-hmm. um, to have that again, like like things used to be, yeah. you know, when we were growing up and before that. So um, then my question to you is, is like, what happens when the um, when the CAFA people leave and you're left with a lot of that as being in one spot. I'm not saying that the people leaving are all kafa. Well, but like, arguably, they're if they're not. the more like relaxed, the more like willing to like listen and share, like if, if people were yeah. willing to uproot their lives and move into smaller towns, I would say that they're probably connected with a little bit more of like their calf. So, and I can be wrong. Like the, I'm looking at this from a sky high view. I'm just like right, a, a right. generalization, like somebody who oh, is extremely anxious and you know, maybe a little bit more Ravata that they probably went uproot their lives and move somewhere else. You know, maybe like a, a pit of, you know, might and stuff like that, right? But um, I would assume if they're seeking a lot more of a relaxed lifestyle um, that they might be a little bit more kappa. Or they're realizing how out of balance their vata is, and they know they need to do something about it before it gets worse. Absolutely, great perspective. Yeah. I think that's, and I think that's a, a main motivating factor. Is I think that people are, the people that are doing those things are perhaps not looking outside themselves to be judgmental of someone else. They're looking inside themselves to know themselves better and to create more sustainability for themselves and their families um, and to create more space. So the interesting thing about Vata is that it's actually the sensation of a loss of space. Mm. So the sensation of a loss, not just of space, but of spaciousness within your body, within your breath, within, in between your thoughts, that that lack of space is when the vata is most high i feel Mm -hmm. um and so there's this like when you realize that your vata is too high when you realize you're burning the candle at both ends you're doing too much you're overwhelmed you're stressed out you can't sleep at night you're worried about everything you know that something has to give because no one you can't go on that way forever it's just you, you, no one can. And so if you're being really self-reflective, I think you're going to feel that. And you're going to feel that deep pulsation of unsettledness within yourself and want to correct it. And so you look to whatever way possible you can do that. Mm-hmm. And there are different treatments that you can do to help settle that. Sometimes moving, although moving is uprooting and it's very vata in and of itself, the the knowing of the end result is is what's going to to settle the person in the long run mm-hmm. or the end result, not just the knowing of it. But um I yeah, so I think that I think that um, there is that epidemic of Vata right now and that it's really important for all of us to take a really good look at it because it's not just like the unsettled feeling that we have inside of our hearts or the worriedness or the fatigue and anxiety and the insomnia that I see so much in the clinic. It's also, um, it's, it, it's, it's in our entire like culture and what's accepted and not only that but what's expected of us Mm -hmm. to do in a day which is not healthy i have a friend who just got back from italy and she was describing what the daily regime was and they were eating for like hours a day 
eating gluten, eating, drinking Prosecco and wine. And there's a whole like different way of looking at meals and food and time spent with each other. So meals aren't eaten alone, rushed, you know, huddled at a desk. They're spent sitting at a table with people you love. And there's something that I don't know if there's been any studies done on it, but from her experiential awareness, there was something about that that added to the entire experience of the meal. And she was describing to me how she would eat things and it would feel like every cell in her body was being nourished by it. And I don't think that many of us have that experience of food anymore. And if we do that, it doesn't happen on a regular basis. And then there was this idea uh, that the Italians have of opening the stomach before you eat. And this is all stuff that we teach in Eastern Medicine Lifestyle Guidance is that there is this time and space that we just don't have built into our daily routines anymore that is squeezing us into a state of imbalance. And that in order to become more balanced again, we're going to have to shift what the norm is. We're going to have to shift. We're going to have to not care about what the expectations are or how much productivity we're supposed to achieve in a day or a week. That we're going to have to make the priority be, you know, how can I create more spaciousness and more nourishment in my life, not just through food, but through how we live in general. And that's a huge paradigm shift. And I think that we're at the beginning, many people are at the beginning of that right now. Um, but there's, I think we have a long way to go. Well, and you know, and that's where like, I think like, you know, even like, this is where like social media is like a tool could actually come in to like help us where like changing what we value, you know, we're, you know, because again, like if we're just chasing like, like the nice Instagram bum or like the, the car with like the rims or like the watch or even like the job or the vacation, like all those kind of things where um, it takes a certain lifestyle of like, you know, to be able to get to those points. But you know, like if we, if we change that and we're, you know, like try to like, you know, like coach people down the line where we start to value like, like what does, you know, like an experience like you know like eating for hours what is that like and like when you're talking about that it's like what what I know of the research I've done about like community and like the sense of community well the one thing that eating and dancing both do that are extremely nourishing to every component of our body is that they break down socioeconomic barriers so it doesn't matter who you are where you're from so it's like the the ultimate connectivity of like you know people no matter who and what and where you are from Everybody needs to eat, everybody needs to laugh, everybody needs to be able to dance and move and have fun. Where like that's what like eating and dancing offer and like where these ceremonies offer where you know like these like Italian people are having like these micro ceremonies every day where they're just celebrating unity and where that unity then brings in community and invites in laughter and, and invites in you know like like dance like all these things to be able to make us feel so like yes all the cells on your body are being nurtured you know in an environment like that so you know like there's no right. doubt to me that people do feel that way because that's one of the main reasons why they know that you know in third world countries that there isn't as many mental health issues because people do still get together you know and, and families get 
get together for meals and people, families get together and they are a part of a community, not like with us in Western culture where we overvalue independence and we overvalue, I'm gonna do this on my own because that's what breeds that I have to work 12 hours today and I have to work seven days a week and all those kind of things because it is an independent pursuit of a life instead of like a collective like agreement of like how can we all live our lives together in more harmony right yeah so the one thing that i wanted to kind of like i guess we bring this i have like a million more things but i know that we're probably like generally like you know we're gonna have to wrap this up pretty soon but the how like we we talked about the elements we talked about the body types um the one or two other things that i would really like to talk about that kind of bring this back in are like the chakras and breathing cycles uh, so maybe we could just like talk about like the chakras and like the energy and then I even believe that there's like chakra boosters like there's certain things that boost chakras if I uh, maybe way off in left field there but you know maybe if you could just kind of like walk us through that and you know kind of like what the chakras mean and what they represent so the chakras have come to be um recognized as these psycho-spiritual energy centers that are rooted in the spinal column and that are located at the places where there are large nerve plexuses in the body. And each of these chakras is responsible for the transmutation of certain types of energy. So the chakra energy is dealing with more survival energetics, the closer to the base of the the thorax so down by the pelvic floor and the energetics that it deals with get successively more subtle as the chakras lift up toward the top of the head and so for example the the root chakra which is down in the pelvic floor region is is the one that's responsible for sort of um, digesting information and beliefs and thoughts and fears about about being safe being safe in your environment and feeling like your body is a safe place for you to be so that's huge um there are a lot of like financial issues that can block up that root chakra because a lot of our safety or beliefs about safety are tied into finances as well. Um, The second chakra is more like the sacral plexus area beneath the navel and it corresponds um, with the lower Dantian from the East Asian traditions. And that is sort of like the source of of our creative energy in the body. That includes the sexual energy, any beliefs about sex about your own sexuality um so any kind of trauma to that region can bring up problems in that area of the body for people and it can make it hard for people to really even take a deep breath because there can be in the in the chakra areas where we hold our traumatic energetics Um, whether it's physical or like a mind-body combination, um, those those areas of the body can get pretty locked up. And um, that's what yoga is for, is to loosen up those knots. And then the third chakra is more 
uh, just above the navel. Sometimes I've seen it represented around the navel. And I see it kind of having to do with not just the digestive functioning in the body because it's called the solar plexus. It's in the solar plexus region, but also with the dispersion of heat equally throughout the top of the body and the bottom of the body as as governed by the movement of the diaphragm. And then the heart chakra is, of course, in the heart area, but in the center of the chest. And the heart chakra is responsible for, when it's open, being able to feel compassion, not just for others, and connection, not just to others, but to any living being, including oneself. And that can be a tough one. So if there is a lot of shame or guilt that a person is is carrying around with them, that heart chakra can actually be a little bit shut down and it can contribute to a lack of joy. And that lack of joy can overflow into the lung area of the body and create grief and create lung issues and breathing issues. Like not even being able to take a deep breath, for example, would be one of those things that can happen. The throat chakra is responsible for um, the communication of the person and not just being able to communicate clearly, but being able to feel comfortable to communicating truthfully. That's a tricky one. Yeah. And then the third eye center is sort of like the master control chakra for the rest of the centers of the body. And it can, by using your third eye or by using your intuitive nature to tap into the rest of your body, it's like you can use your wisdom consciousness, which there are different aspects of the consciousness in Eastern medicine. And when we tap into the wisdom consciousness, it's more like we're tapping into our our sense of feeling safe enough in our bodies and in the world to be able to look at ourselves truthfully and be okay with whatever we find. Mm -hmm. And so that chakra is responsible for being able to do that, but for also being able to tap into our intuition. And then the crown chakra is at the top of the head and that's more associated with more transcendental thinking and experiences. Mm -hmm. And so, those chakras can be i've i've heard about the chakras being charged it's kind of like a a chi cultivation practice i would say and you can use the breath to do that you can use mantras to do that um you can use herbs to do that you can strengthen those parts of the body where those chakras are rooted and then um you asked about the chakras and what was the other thing uh the breath cycle like just going through a proper like you know like deep breathing cycle because the one thing that i've noticed you know like outside of um like an eastern medicine practice is that because our everyday lives have become so um so lethargic that i feel there's a growing population that have like a really tough time with like cardiovascular performance just because they don't know how to breathe like their diaphragm is so weak they like don't know it feels like like it just it's so hard to even know how to take a proper breath um and, and then not is, only, when yeah. you when you do then you know like then when you get into more of like a holistic side where it's like okay well now like let's like take that to the next level and how can i achieve like this this point of wellness by using like my, my breath cycle and and like tapping into these other components of my body because you know just flooding to me like 
you know, I was introduced in in a way of just like wanting to be able to flood the tissue with oxygen. You know, and then like yeah. when I realized that, I'm like, I feel a lot better. I think for multiple reasons now, but like that's always kind of the forward facing component to me is like how, like how we have this lack of oxygen in our body because we cannot breathe properly and like through our lifestyles we just don't allow that. So like the proper of the or proper. Um, you know, like breath cycle to go through, like how to be able to breathe and like how you feel about those things. I think that the breathing is just as important, if not more so than what you put in your mouth, because 70% of the bodily toxins are released to the breath. It's not by going to hot yoga or sauna or whatever people think it is. It's through their breathing. And um, that's huge. And if the diaphragm isn't moving as it was designed to as the primary breathing muscle, then the, the diaphragm's attached to the liver. And the way I look at it is when you take a breath in and that diaphragm presses down on the liver, you're squeezing all that blood and gunk that it's trying to filter out of your system out of it so it can get rid of it and your body can, can pee it out or whatever. Um, if the diaphragm isn't moving, then that's when we feel those contrary wood characteristics. We feel more frustrated. We feel more irritable. Um, we feel less in control of our lives. And we can also have more aches and pains because if we're not taking full advantage of our body's own natural ability to detox itself, um, then gunk's going to build up in the tissue. And in Chinese medicine, we call it dampness and phlegm. And in um, Ayurvedic medicine, we call it ama or toxicity. And when that happens, then other things can come down the pike that make us feel ill. So to take a deep breath is really one of the most important things that we can do. And it's here's the thing. It's not a forced breath. Right. So as you mentioned, so many people are uncomfortable with or unable to feel like they can actually take a deep breath. And that in and of itself creates anxiety, which creates you breathing more shallow, shallowly. And then it's this like perpetual cycle that emerges. So what I encourage people to do to start out, especially if they feel like they can't really take a nourishing full breath is to notice the breath that they are taking, even if it feels like the tiniest little puff of air, and notice where they feel it in their body. Do they feel it in their nose? Do they feel it in their throat, in their chest, in their belly? Where do they feel it? And take that little puff and recognize that that puff is spaciousness. And then to just be content with that. So you're gonna let go of judgment about whether or not you're taking a full breath or even what that is. Don't even think about it. But just focus on that spaciousness that you do have. And once you relax into that without any judgment, what you will find so far every time I've worked with someone with us, what I have found is that they do find that more spaciousness emerges from that space and that those blocks that feel like they're holding the breath in that one small part of their body dissolve. And it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to be able to let go of the preconceived notion of how you're supposed to breathe and to just allow yourself to feel what spaciousness feels like, then that's a letting in that allowing. So there's not 
you know, it's not like the breath is forced because when we force the breath, we can create more resistance. And so, so and like, would I, a forced breath be like, like when you're like when you're working out or like when like a forced breath is in like like you gasped in like you're frightened like what would classify as a forced breath when people try to force themselves to take a deep breath and they really can't mm, okay okay or when people are doing like pranayama exercises in a yoga class before they're really ready to mm -hmm. because just like any other muscle you got to build up like you're not just going to send somebody out to run a marathon that hasn't been for a walk in eight years <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah. even it's the same with the breath and and the the network in the body it needs to that web structure in the body needs to open up slowly because you don't want to you don't want to hurt like mr angar would say the little threads it's it's like this little web and it, you need to create more elasticity in that yeah. before you know, really forcing yourself into more in-depth pranayama exercises. So I just, I encourage people to first find that space within themselves. And then um, another helpful thing to know is that um, when we're like sitting at a desk all day or something like that, that posture, even just sitting, encourages more shallow breathing. And when we shallowly breathe, we're using um, the intercostals that we shouldn't be, we're, we're not using the diaphragm fully. We are expending a ton of energy using the muscles up around the neck, the trapezius, and we're using those secondary breathing muscles that we would only use in a fight or flight situation to breathe on a, on a daily, like most of our lives schedule. And that creates a lot of fatigue and it creates muscle tension and soreness, and it creates more anxiety and more feelings of hostility. And um, so just knowing that, I encourage people to, if they are sitting a lot, to stand up, walk around, stretch out. But when they when they are sitting, to, to just even like back off a little bit, open up the chest, you can grab onto like the door frame and with your hand and twist open so that you're stretching your pecs and focus on relaxing your shoulders, relaxing your jaw. A lot of time people that are grinding and clenching at night, it's because they shallow breathe all the time and all those muscles up around the back are locked up. They're coming up the back of the head, they're coming around and they're coming into the jaw. And so everything is just sort of immobile. And you can't like be clenching your jaw and take a deep breath. Like the whole body breathes when you, when you take deep breaths. So, um, so really I would just encourage people to start with that with that movement of spaciousness in the body, that awareness of the spaciousness in the body, and then recognizing from there that there's an inhalation, a transition at the top of the inhale, an exhalation, and then a pause at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And then they can focus on that breathing cycle, that inhale, transition, exhale and pause and notice where you feel the most comfortable in your breathing cycle notice where you feel the least comfortable in your breathing cycle without judging it and then from there 
there's like a five element breathing practice that one could do to understand more like why you might feel more comfortable in one place and why you might feel less comfortable in another. And it usually ties into the five elements and the organs that they're attached to and the psychophysiological functioning of those organs present in Eastern medicine that explain like how we end up feeling. Oh. that's yeah and like all those kind of things like I, I feel like those those are the ties and some of the things that like you know we really like we as a culture probably need to focus on so much more now when we were just gifted a lot of these opportunities you know like maybe a hundred plus years ago you know it's just like a natural part of life like you know we didn't sit all day we were outside more you know like we were immersed in nature like, you know like we did a lot of these things and why like I feel where where people need to adopt some of these principles or should be adopting some of these principles now because you know we've never really lived in a time where it was more important than what it is now you know because we're going more into like a simulated world all the time with like virtual reality goggles and you know like virtual offices and you know like all these things that just they they change our bodies and how they've been evolved to operate for over thousands and thousands of years you know and like we've just kind of like curbed them all and now we have to really focus on these like if people four or five thousand years ago thought these principles were um, worthy of adopting and understanding like could you imagine those people coming into like our lives today and understanding like how how we need these so much more now than ever and like the magnitude of what they should be deployed in our culture today um the only one thing i want to try to squeeze in there at the end because this is something that i absolutely love is um like like taoist philosophy and uh -huh. like kind of like the first scripture reading of like Taoist. and i know i'm gonna butcher this but like it is something that just has like it'll be forever etched my my mind for every second uh, for the rest of my life is that um basically that a path worth defining is no longer a path worth taking i know it's a lot more complex than that but it's just like, i can't remember it verbatim but like uh -huh. i just think that that is like the absolute best tidbit of information that like anybody could have ever offered me because it's how i've lived my life every single day and it feels incredibly sobering to know that that is actually like like a philosophy that's out there and that has been like studied and adopted uh, how much do you know about taoist philosophy or like do you live your I, life by that or um i would love to live my life by that yeah <laughs> um i know I it's think... kind of like the base for eastern medicine like ayurvedic you know medicine uh, yeah. you know like well, yoga philosophy like yang symbol is is a taoist symbol yeah and the Wu or the Avyakta, uh, the the nothingness that is not no thing. That's all. That's Taoist. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Tao is something that cannot be described. It's like you were saying about quantum physics. We can't possibly comprehend, and that's kind of like the way the Tao is too. But also, it can be. It can't be described, but to some extent, it can be experienced. So, the 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 connection or those transcendental moments that we get sometimes when we're out in nature or when we're in like the perfect stride or we you know do the perfect axle or whatever the the you know thing is that we're doing or we we play the perfect piece where you just feel like you're a part of an indistinguishable 
part of all that is and that like transcendent reality is is like the experience of the Tao. It's it's that experience of perfect present where one isn't thinking of the past or of the future, but is just perfectly still with what is in the moment and is perfectly embodied in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that to me is the Tao. Yeah, I think it's just incredible. Uh, we can wrap. We can wrap up there because if I'm allowed to keep on talking, uh, like literally, if, like my whiteboard is like absolutely just filled with like a ton of like more questions and avenues field explore i think i got two four six eight ten sixteen topics on there we went through like seven of them and stuff but so if i don't stop talking now we're, we're going to be here for another week so um but i just think like i just really want to thank you it was an incredible opportunity and um just being able to like pick your brain and just be able to hear you talk and like i just feel it, it was such a gift and such an opportunity Thank you so much. It was a joy to be able to talk with you today, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. You're welcome.